Ali Baker, she, her, an education lecturer and children's fantasy literature researcher at University of East London. You're listening to Fantasy Book Swap, where a guest and I swap children's fantasy fiction, one classic and one contemporary, and we discuss them. Today, I'm joined by Trip Gailey, creator of various fantasies, one half of the team at Underhill Academy for Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers, brilliant name, and author of the forthcoming novel, A Market of Dreams and Destiny. Hello, what have you been up Hi. to recently? Um, so I am currently, I am, I am, I don't know, elbow deep, hip deep, whatever you want to call it, in the middle of writing the sequel <gasps> to A Market of Dreams and Destiny. Oh, how exciting! Um, it's very, it's very exciting. I, 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 um, I have never written myself into so many corners in a project in my entire life. Oh dear. Um, I, <laughs> That's those goblet markets for you. Y- yes. And as soon as you start magically changing like the laws of anything, like it can rapidly spin out of control. So there's a lot of me sweating at the keyboard right now being like, okay, how do I make this work? How do I make this work? Um, but it, it, it's really fun and I'm really excited and I obviously can't say much about it right now, but it does involve another intangibly traded item, uh, only this time the repercussions are much more difficult to deal <laughs> with. Tell um, us a little bit about the first book. Uh, so A Market of Dreams and Destiny is a alternate Victorian London with magic. Um, Basically, when Henry VIII was like, "Mm, I need to get rid of my first wife, instead of going to Rome, he's like, well, we'll just go back to Druidism because hand fasting and paganism and it's fine, set her aside, move on. Um, Misogynist, but that's sort of like the point at which it diverted. And then Elizabeth comes along and she forges a treaty with... uh, Titania between um, the kingdoms of the British Isles and Fairy, and now there's a goblin market underneath London. Um, and so the story centers around uh, this boy called Derry, and he's 17, and he's working as an indentured servant for one of the goblin, the goblin merchants at the at the Untermarkt, um, and he is. He's, he's he's a very cheeky cheeky chappy, very cocky cockney. He's trying to buy himself out of his indentured servitude early on and set himself up as a merchant. And he gets the chance to do that, but complications ensue because the merchandise is too hot to sell on. And he also makes the mistake of falling in love with another guy. And so there's this extra complication. So we get magical trades and a little bit of like, you know, workhouse rebellion, some sort of like nascent, um, worker organizing um and so like lots of loopholes and shenanigans and magical deals and craziness in an alternate magical victorian london and and that it's published in september am i right 12th september from titan books available from all good bookshops so shall we move on and talk about uh your your book the book that you chose which is um, Jeremy Thatcher, Dragon Hatcher by Bruce Coville, which I'd never heard of at all. It's brilliant. I, 
I love it so much. And it, I mean, it's, it's part of a, a series. I think there are five of them called the magic shop books. I, I don't know how that could have possibly impacted on my psyche as a child at all. With me writing magical merchants. Yeah. <laughs> no. And this isn't the first book, is it? There's, this is the second, I think. But I, am I right in thinking they, apart from the magical shop owner, that they all have quite standalone? Is that right? Um, as I understand it, yes. I, I grew up in basically a book desert. Um, so I am old enough that I predate Amazon. Like the way I got a hold of this book originally was uh, a thing called the Scholastic Book Fair. Are you familiar with the Scholastic Book Fairs? Yes. Yeah. So um, those magical I, brown bookshelves that opened, and you could. Well, the thing is, like, I lived so far in the middle of nowhere. We didn't even have like a lot of books around. We got uh, basically every kid got a little catalog. Um, wow. And you would go through and you would circle the books you wanted, and then your parents would like, you know, pay a fee to get them shipped and everything. Um, and Jeremy Thatcher Dragon Hatcher was in one of those little one of those little catalogs mm. and I, I circled the ever loving flip out of it. And <laughs> it had such a good cover, such a good cover. Like the kid looking at this tiny dragon hatching from like this iridescent egg. And there was like swirling colors all around it. And it was blue and it was bold and it was bright. And it was, I think there's something really great too about the rhyming title, Jeremy Thatcher, dragon hatcher. Um, and not all of the titles rhyme. Um, Jeremy does. There's also Juliet Dove, Queen of Love, which I haven't read. Um, the Monster's Ring, which I wasn't able to get a copy of when I was a child and haven't picked up since. But there's also one called Jennifer Murdley's Toad. I had that one. That one was fantastic. And yeah, um, but no dragons in that one. Um, mm. What was the original question? I've completely gone off on a tangent. Oh, well, um, I was going to say your memories of first reading it, but yeah, you, you're talking about your memories of first reading it. Do you remember kind of how you felt when you first read it? Is it one of those books that's really, you know, wow, imprinted on your on your mind? So having just reread it, mm. um, I can see now with adult me looking back reading it now being like oh there there are undercurrent reasons to this that now i'm like oh no wonder i was all over this as a kid which at the time i did not appreciate mm -hmm. um at the time it was it was very much i i was like what you can be having a, a terrible no good very bad a horrible day and you can run away from your problems and find a magic shop it mm. gives you cool stuff for yes. a quarter. And it's always a quarter in all of the books. The magical thing only ever costs a quarter, which is very achievable as yeah. a child. Uh, um, and like that, as a child, that really appealed. And like, I, I had the thing that so many kids have when they're little, like they love dinosaurs, they love dragons, they love anything really, really big that mm. they can imagine having more power than their parents. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I was, oh, I was such a sucker for dragon, dragon related books. Um, 
And yeah, so I really, I really responded to the dragon. I really responded to the idea that there is magic lurking out there somewhere. If you can just find it. Um, unfortunately, I never found the magic shop on my own, uh, which is sad. And I still vaguely resent to this day, yeah. but what can you do? Um, but yeah, I really responded to the magic. I really responded to the, um, the just dragons. Um, but then rereading it now as an adult, I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. There is, uh, there is such a radical thread of empathy running through this book. It is, especially because the protagonist is a young boy. Yeah. Um, and like quite, quite often books for boys can be very like rambunctious and adventurous. Mm. Um, and this one, this one does have adventure. It has like crazy stuff happening, especially the dinner scene, uh, which I will not spoil, but the dinner scene. Um, uh, but yeah, there's a radical thread of empathy running through this. Uh, and there are some really beautiful lines reading it uh, that you don't notice as a kid. Um, like, I don't think this is a huge spoiler, but the family dog is called grief yes. for w one reason or another. But like, there's this beautiful line where the family dog is following him to the room. And it was like grief followed on at his heels or it's something like that. And the line, it's just, it is a staggeringly beautiful line. Um, but like, if you're a kid, you're like, Oh yeah, that's the dog. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but the radical empathy that, that runs through the whole book uh, really, really struck me when I reread it this time, as much as like, I still love all the, like the magic and the, and the weirdness and the amazing, cause this one also, this one not only has an amazing magical shop owner, it has an amazing kick-ass librarian. Kick oh, sorry. I love the librarian, Hyacinth. Priest. Hyacinth Smith, yeah. Hyacinth Priest. Priest. And you just know she's gonna be magical with a name yes. like that. But yep. yeah, I love a magical librarian. I mean, yeah. like, I mean, the I'm flowy scarves and the dangly earrings. Yeah. And, and she's like, and, and she, I, I had a, one of my favorite humans ever was a children's librarian at my library when I was a child, because we didn't grow up in a book desert, but we just didn't have a lot of money for, you know, luxuries, if you see what I mean. So we... Our librarian, the librarian was so important to me. And also, I mean, I read so voraciously. I don't think my parents would ever have been able to keep up with my need for books. And we didn't have a bookshop where I grew up. So the library was was very, very important. And Adrienne Jakes was the name of the children's librarian. And she knew me really well, like in the way that, that uh, Hyacinth Priests obviously knows Jeremy really well knows like a bookish child what a bookish child is going to like knows the perfect book and yeah so that was that really I really related to that yeah definitely and I think there were two other things that really struck me was firstly um it's nice to have a children's book where the mother where the parents aren't awful and there's no reason to, to kind of get away from parents because of their awfulness. It's actually just that there's this incredibly unbelievable thing that's happening and you know that your parents are never going to believe you if you tell them. 
But also, I really like the relationship between Jeremy and his dad. And his dad is quite wacky and funny and um, also, obviously, as a vet, loves animals, the same that, that Jeremy does. And his mum is a bit more kind of just a bit more bemused, just a bit, you know, what I, I live in chaos. I have no idea what's going on, which is the way I quite often feel as well mm. as a step parent. So that was I liked that. So it's good when children have a kind of autonomy and agency away from their parents, but their parents aren't actively horrible. That's that's quite refreshing, I think. The other thing was the art teacher and that kind of encounter with a teacher that for some reason you just don't click with. And then Jeremy has this moment of clarity of like, oh, this teacher is working really, really hard, but is lacking something that he sees in Jeremy and so, like, his jealousy of Jeremy's talent is actually what is the problem. And that's that's the teacher's issue that the teacher should deal with, but hasn't done. And that's such a – that moment of when you're about 11, 12, 13, and you're starting to see yourself as a separate person and realising that other people don't view the world the way that you do. And that is, I found that really powerful. Yeah. The the thing with the art teacher, too, is like, it's it's nice at the end of the book that there's understanding. Mm. Um, and that it's, it's framed in a sort of complex way that I Hard to don't talk about fully agree spoilers. with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the there's this idea um, that you have to have a certain sort of experience if you're going to succeed in life. If you're going to like do a thing, well, then like you've got to toughen up, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and like that doesn't work for everyone. Yeah, but a lot of the time, it's just sort of like applied as like force. And like yeah. a lot of the time it like that, that's one of the things I really responded to like with Jeremy is that he felt full on bullied. Yes. Like, and the teacher was, the teacher was effectively bullying him, but yeah. there's that moment at the end where you get a glimpse of sort of the art teacher's perspective. And it's like, from one perspective, you can see that he's trying to help Jeremy. He's trying to like toughen him up and like get him prepared for the really difficult world mm -hmm. of being an artist. But he's going about it in a way that is just being a complete and total dick. And yeah, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of cishet nonsense to the, to the way it's like applied. It's like, nope, we're just going to, we're just gonna brutalize you so that you can survive on land. Yeah, not yeah. helpful. Not always helpful. <laughs> no, and it's very much that idea of like you have to be tough to be a man, which is is very distressing. 
um, and also untrue. And um, but that that kind of yes, you've got to be like the kind of so brutalized by life that you no longer express emotions is is not a great um, not a great message for for sensitive children and particularly not sensitive no, but boys. that's but that's why i love this book so much it is undercut so yes. expertly in this book like jeremy's emotions are key like yep. they're you you can't get rid of them and like the empathy that is taught both in terms of how he interacts with some of his father's animal patients yeah and uh his his link with uh tiamat um like there's so much empathy there and um it also really undercuts sort of the ideas of masculine friendship for boys mm -hmm. it, there's such a good arc mm. between jeremy and his friends um because he's got one friend that he starts out with thinking like okay this is my best friend um and by the end he's like oh maybe we don't understand one another quite as well as I thought. And then there's another person who he's not friends with at all. But by the end, they've had the, they've had a sort of shared experience that brings them around to being friends. When at the beginning you're like, Oh, I, I thought this was like a fully antagonistic sort of relationship. Yeah. And, and actually that is, that's such an interesting point because I'm just going to like do a small spoiler here which is at the beginning, Mary Lou is sexually harassing him. And this whole um, bullying around girlfriend, boyfriend, romantic relationships, which Jeremy is like not interested in at all. Like we don't know um, whether it's because he's not at that stage of maturity yet or if it's just because like this isn't for him or like, He's, you know, he's not going to want relationships with women as he gets older. We don't know. But he is not interested. And that whole thing of like the kissy stuff and you know, like her threatening to kiss him, whether he wants it or not, all of that stuff is really like, Ugh. but then her being able to see the dragon and then them also find it. Well, first of all, they, they discover a shared interest in fantasy then it turns out that mary lou can see the dragon and then at the end she's one of the people that that is instrumental in kind of the the story coming out the way it should is is um is very interesting but yeah that kind of handling of like jeremy actually having to escape from her because he's so horrified by the idea of her kissing him is is also something i I can relate to. <laughs> um, I think I think the detail here that I responded so much to because, like, as a boy, I would have had no interest in kissing girls, and as an adult, I have little interest in kissing girls. Um, but the problem is so much how everyone else or how society forces their perspective on Jeremy when he's not ready. Yeah. His classmates mm. making fun of him and making kissy noises at him all the time. And then even when he tries to explain it to his parents, 
his dad's first reaction is, well, well, I don't want you go to go. Don't, don't go kissing that girl. Mm. You're too young for that. Don't go kissing her. He's like, well, I'm not, I, I am not the problem here. Yeah. I am not the instigator. Do not turn this around on me. And I so respond to that because as a queer child growing up, I was relentlessly hammered with like anytime I was seen in the vicinity of a girl, like all of the adults in the room being like, so your girlfriend, is that your girlfriend now? Are you guys going out? And it's just, it's so frustrating and it's so annoying. And like this book really nails how frustrating and annoying it is for adults to just not get it. Yeah. And to be like, no, no, I have no interest. What are you doing? Yeah. And, and it not is, my thing. I remember the exclusive, ex- exclusive, like that horrible, excruciating sense of toe curling embarrassment around anything related to talking about relationships, boys, anything like that. When I, you know, between the ages of about 10 and 12, I think, I just like how. Oh, I do not want to think about this. I do not want to talk about this. Stop pushing it on me. It was just horrible. And um, yeah, even stuff like, you know, if you eat your crusts, your hair will curl and boys love curly hair and all of that. It was just so horribly embarrassing. Yeah, as a little as a little boy, I always got the well, you want to eat that because it'll put hair on your chest. Yeah. Why why would I want that? (laughs) I don't want that. Why would I want that? Stop talking to me about grown-up things. I don't want to talk about grown-up things. Yeah. Should we? I mean, I've I've kind of realized that we've kind of dived into right in the middle of this. And like, probably we ought to tell people what this book is about. (laughs) Uh, Right. Um, Should uh, we summarize the plot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, So... The plot is um, ordinary, artistically gifted boy faces annoyance and trouble from his classmates around him and in trying to escape, runs away and finds himself in a part of town that he doesn't recognize and notices a really cool looking magic shop. Uh, And he goes in and he wanders around and all of a sudden there's this spherical thing that's calling out to him. And after some back and forth, uh, he he buys it uh, for a quarter and he goes home and it turns out it's a dragon egg and he has to hatch and raise this dragon on his own, keeping it secret and keeping it safe. Um, and of course, you know, shenanigans ensue and personal growth and change happens. And it's this really beautiful story of uh increasing maturity and um dealing with like creatures uh other than you that are dependent on you mm-hmm. and um dealing with a lot of uh emotions because dragons while they exist are no longer of this world and so will have to go away eventually and so there's a lot of fun and shenanigans but also like a lot of like emotional grounding um it's 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 a fun beautiful story uh, and he the the mag the magic shop proprietor seems somehow to have magically 
called him to the shop if that's that's the well like it's a you know it's a it's a complete uh accident that he finds the shop for some reason this dragon has chosen jeremy to raise her and i love first of all i love that she's uh, a female dragon because quite often in magical books magical creatures default to being male and so that's that's pretty exciting but the the shopkeeper tries to sort of put him off but you know no that that dragon chose him while she was in her egg and that is that's quite amazing but also that because he's used to being around animals he knows how to look after the dragon you know he, he has to research what the dragon should eat he has to find out how to look after the dragon i love also things like you know because as she's growing up she's learning to blow fire and he she likes sleeping in his sock drawer and so there's a, there's a, a, a potential sense of danger that his mum might be angry that his a lot of his socks have tiny scorch marks in them mm. i thought that was so so sweet um but also yeah that that his mum refused the good the positive thing is that because he keeps lots of animals in his room anyway uh his mum refuses to go into his bedroom and so that there's a sort of a slight source of uh safety there so like yeah bruce colvalid kind of it's lots of little details that make it so perfectly believable and of course that he doesn't know that that uh tiamat's invisible to most people including yeah. to his best friend which mm. is interesting that yeah. that kind of indicates that like we can still be friends but we're not each other's everything anymore um which which i kind of loved um should we talk a little bit about um the importance of books within the book so like we've talked about how um the magical librarian has the perfect book for him but there's other other books book related things that are in in um the novel some of which i think i probably wouldn't have quite got had i been reading it at around well between nine and eleven which is the age i think i'd have loved it um so the, there's also the the fact that mary lou and um jeremy bond over fantasy books so c.s lewis obviously is the one that um you know, I think most most children in Britain at the time that I was growing up would have known. But Natalie Babbitt, and I had to Google Natalie Babbitt, and I realised that she wrote Tuck Everlasting, but that I did had no idea that she was such a prolific author. I, I only ever read Tuck Everlasting. Same. Yeah. I thought that was that was quite interesting that Bruce Colville is I do like quite like the way that authors for children sometimes drop in at these other little things and so like it sticks in your mind and you think oh i'm gonna go and find out about that That's and it's so important because like at the time that this was coming out you didn't like there was no internet exactly like, yeah like like and a lot of kids don't have the fan connections so mm. you don't have those other people in your life Mm. giving you access to these books telling you oh go and read that like that was one of like su that was such a huge formative part of my university experience was was making more geek friends because i grew up in the middle of nowhere like nowhere 
Um, like I, I grew up on a cattle ranch in Nebraska. Um, mm. You can't <laughs> like, get more nowhere than that, really. Yeah. Um, three hour drive from the closest bookstore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there were only three shelves, not, not, not bookcases, three, three shelves on a bookcase of fantasy books in the local library. That was it. And they didn't have complete series. Oh, <laughs> like, no. Like I, when I was growing up, I adored David Eddings. They had Pot of Prophecy, the second one in the series, and then the fifth. <laughs> books three and four just weren't on, on the shelf. And obviously no nearby books. Are, it took me years <laughs> to finally track down and complete mm. several series that were on those shelves. Um, but yeah, like, like, and, and then as a kid, if you have read that, you're like, oh, oh, like this person's like me. Mm. Like this person has read Narnia. Um, yeah. And if I hadn't read Narnia, I would have gone looking for Narnia. Um, but I had read Narnia. So, so when I was like, oh, they're talking about the sort of things that I like to read. They're talking about this, that book that is right there on my desk right now. Yeah. Um, and that's amazing. Yeah. Like, it's so good. Yeah, I think I had a lot of friends um, as a child who were actually book characters. <laughs> that yeah, because they were kind of the people who were like me. So yeah, um, and I, I mean, I was I was kind of uh, teased as a child for reading so much, you know, um, by by adults and by other children actually. Um, but yes, yeah, so that that was that was really lovely, and I also love the magic the magical book that tells him exactly what he needs at the time he needs to know it um, by about the, the dragon, how to look after the dragon. So like that's, in terms of the pain. So that's um yeah, that's a, that's a piece of paper that comes from the shopkeeper yeah, and it like updates itself a couple times. He also does have a, a, a book on dragons, yes. um, which he finds out was actually written by the magical shopkeeper. Yeah. Gasp. Um, but yeah, like especially because like how to how to train your dragon has 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 those like excerpts and drawings and whatnot. And like Jeremy Thatcher again has pictures of the. This is how you. I, I think there's a picture of the care and feeding of dragons. Yeah. Or is the picture or a picture of the original note? One of those two. Um, and then it has some beautiful like pencil sketch drawings as well um, of Tiamat doing different things and at different stages of her growth and development, which is fantastic. Mm. Like they're, they're really beautiful drawings that add so much. I don't think my, my, this is the copy I got, which is obviously a British version. This is, this is great for audio, but I will put a photo of it on the, in the show notes, but it, I don't think it has the same illustrations as the original. No, because the illustrations are 2003, which is when this book was first published in oh. Britain. So, so, yeah, it's, um, I, I mean, I, I is, the what does the, uh, what does the, what does the note look like on yours then? The the care and feeding of dragons or whatnot. I don't think it's no, it's it's not got a picture of the note. Oh, the note is so cool. Okay, so 
I still have my library membership in the States and there's an ebook version that has the original um, drawing. I don't know if you can see this, but this is the front piece. Oh, that's beautiful. And it's yeah. a picture of Tiamat curled around as a baby, baby dragon curled around Jeremy's art supplies. For those of you that can't see it. Um, and smoke coming out of her little nostrils. Um, but yeah, like there are some beautiful drawings in here um, and they're included. It makes the ebook really hard to handle because it doesn't like loading around the images. Yes. But um, like they're, they're complex. They are wow. full on full page, yeah. very highly detailed drawings. Um, and they were clearly done by the original cover artist, at least for the edition I had. Um, mm. Cause Jeremy looks exactly the same. Uh, between those editions. Uh, yeah, here we go. How to Hatch a Dragon's Egg. Look how awesome that is. Oh, that's gorgeous. Yeah, so it's a, it's a very parchmenty. Sorry. Um, yeah, I'll send you a screenshot um, just to describe for people who are listening now. It is a very parchmenty looking piece of paper and it has a dragon breathing fire and the fire becomes the words How to Hatch a Dragon's Egg and then it's got you can't read it, but it's got spidery script and it's signed by the shopkeeper and it's got an illuminated manuscript letter for the initial letter. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. It's just, it just, it's full of, I think there are like six or seven just beautiful illustrations like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah. And I thought it was so fascinating that um, both of these dragon books had visual representations um, of things like the care and feeding of dragons. Yeah. Well, let's go on and talk about. Um, uh, one second, one second. You're going to love this. Sorry, this is, on. this is Hyacinth Priest. Yes. Oh, wow. Oh, I love that. Yeah. She does look quite magical. Absolutely. So, yeah, so my, my book, funnily enough, was also published in 2003, the same that time that Jeremy Thatcher, Dragon Hatcher, was, was published um, in the UK. Shortly, obviously, after all the publishers in the world, uh, or all the publishers in Britain, at least, were trying to find pre-existing magical series because of the the phenomenon of of um, mm. she who shall not be named and um and her books so it was um i think that's probably why jeremy thatcher dragon hatcher arrived so so quick you know at that point in the uk so um my choice yeah as i said cressida cowell former children's laureate how to train your dragon and uh this is interestingly enough for people who love the dreamworks film which i love the dreamworks film but it's quite different from the book it is i actually have a plush toothless sitting right across like, like he's, he's like right across the room right over there yeah we have a we have a toothless somewhere uh, because my stepson um, at his very first uh, EasterCon, dressed up as uh, Hiccup. Um, Amazing. Yeah, we made him, me and his mum made him a little 
pickup outfit uh, with helmet and everything. And he looked very cute. Okay, so I will read the blurb. You are here to prove yourself a Viking hero. And it is an ancient tradition of the hooligan tribe that you should. Gobber paused dramatically. First catch your dragon. Oh, suffering scallops, thought Hiccup. And that is the, the blurb of the book. Um, What did you think of it? Like, I enjoyed reading it. Uh, well, rereading it because I read it. I read it after I saw the film. Mm. Um, it's, I can see the appeal. Uh, I read yeah. it as an adult initially. Um, I can see why some kids, particularly boys, would like it. Um, but it's, it has that sense of, this is what an adult thinks a kid will find funny. Yeah. Um, it has a lot of scatological humor because, mm. oh, kids think that's hilarious. Um, mm. And it's very, it's very boisterous. Yeah. Um, and which is interesting because the protagonist hiccup in the book is presented as not your standard hero. He has to become a hero the, the hard way or the very hard way of being a hero, um, which is a bit more brainy and from one point of view could be seen as empathetic mm. um like jeremy but also it's it's more in the vein of like well he's smart so he has to work on a different level he has to he has to try and bond with his dragon um mm -hmm. because he can't just use the force of his personality or the force of his muscles to make his dragon do what he wants mm. um it, the 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 empathy doesn't feel as natural as it does in jeremy thatcher it doesn't feel as um doesn't it doesn't feel as much like empathy uh, it doesn't feel like there's quite as much understanding there he hasn't got a like-minded community in the way no. that jeremy has and and I, the, I mean, the, there's bits about it I think are really, really great. I absolutely love the illustrations. Then they're kind of much more childlike than the illustrations in in Jeremy Thatcher, but they're they're kind of they're funny and they're they're lively. I love all of the little bits of dragon facts. So um, they're. The book How to Train Your Dragon by Professor Yobish, um, I found really funny. Um with the kind of uh the the public library stamp in the front of it, which says, um, please return this book on or before the last date stamped, or I will be very annoyed. I think you know what I mean. And then it's got 10th of June, seven hundred 789 AD and, and so on. I thought that was that was funny. And um the kind of Beowulf is a softy, come here and say that some stuff. And then um the, the book is one page. The golden rule of dragon training is to yell at it, the louder the better, the end. I I did think that was I, I found that amusing. 
Yeah, it's funny. There's a lot of there is a lot of humor through the book. Um, not all of it is to my taste, but some of it is really, really good. Like, it, yeah, not gonna lie. Yeah, but but there were some there were bits about it that I think when I first read it, and I I first read it uh, twenty years ago, actually when it was when it was first um, published, or around that time, I hadn't realized quite how misogynistic some of it is i don't think i picked that up at the time i read it and kind of bordering if not totally full-on homophobia within the book about like you know that that bit about beowulf is a softy all of that stuff you know the under i know the undercurrent of what that means in terms of this book the bit about you know if you're not going to be tough to be a dragon uh, if you're not tough enough to be a hooligan, then you might as well wear a, a lavender-coloured tunic, etc. That I found unnecessary, and um, and and it threw me out of the book in a way that kind of then I found it less of a enjoyable place to be than I had when I first read it. Um, I think that must have just washed over me. Uh, it's very, um, it's very gender essentialist in a yes. lot of ways. It does subvert it a little bit because Hiccup's mum, the Holorama, which mm. okay, I love the name. I do love the name. Is there? She's present, and she's yeah. clearly a force to be reckoned with. Mm. In the like three lines she gets, yes, uh, about her, um, but like. And one of those is like they they steal her brazier so that they can construct things. Yeah. Um, but like like the nice thing about like like the film is still like very male heavy. Um, although that's that's the sequel. I yeah. Is it the sequel where yeah. Hiccup's mother shows up? Sort yeah. of bounces out a bit. But but in the film, at least, you've got rough nut and tough nut. Yes, like there is a. There is a female presence amongst Hiccup's age cohort, mm. um, uh, and it's it, it is there. They actually address it. Um, they have some flirting at some point in the series, like it's present. Yeah. But in the books, I think Hiccup's mother is the only woman ever mentioned. In later books, there are other women characters and girl characters but definitely in this book no in the first book yeah in it is first book, it's it only. Is boys 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 yeah it is the he-man woman haters club mm. um yeah the the whole girls are soppy yuck kind of thing which is there in jeremy thatcher but it's subverted and he learns yeah. that not and at the end of the jeremy thatcher he has a girl who is a friend, friend. who is not his girlfriend and she is she is important for us throughout his mum is very important mm -hmm. um like there are other women that show up in the background hyacinth priest exactly. um arguably more present even than the than the shop owner um yeah so yeah and but yeah reading um how to train your dragon yeah it's like i'm like it, this is all boys and yeah. most of them are the kind of boys i would not hang out with as a child, they are the kind of boys where I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go over here and read. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I'm, and, I'm just going to go and hang out in the art room with Jeremy. Yeah. And that's, you know, to, to, to a degree, that's all right, because not every book has to be for every person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's good that uh, boys can find things that they recognize and they resonate with them. Uh, well, boys of that, of that genre, um, find books that draw them in and show them familiar places. But I don't, I really don't think it goes far enough in, in challenging Mm. heteronormative gender essentialism that like, like this, this, these are Vikings. Like there's a long history of like warrior women in literature, Mm. like, like this is the culture that gave you the Valkyries, the choosers of the slain. Um, They didn't just like ride around and look pretty on horses. Like they were on battlefields. Like, yeah, um, and there's some amazing Norse um, goddesses as well that were yeah who were incredibly important in in mythology. Um, around this time, and actually a little bit before this, in the a- end of the 1990s, there was this massive moral panic about boys and reading, which. To be honest, I think it's because we value reading as being fiction reading as a kind of education system and other types of reading are not important. Boys always read. Um, They read um, books about facts. I mean, I've never met a boy who was between the ages of seven and nine who didn't either, wasn't either obsessed with dinosaurs or sharks or monster trucks, and yeah, those kind of books are always popular. Um, yeah, uh, Guinness Book of World Records. Yes, yeah. When I was in elementary school, like, like the, it was the Guinness, Guinness Book of World Records. Oh, did you know this thing? Yeah, and this is the biggest thing, and this is the smallest thing, and this is the longest thing. Like, yeah, huge, All huge sales. Yeah, every year. And also, um, when I was growing up, there were these two rival books, which was like the Observer's Book series and the I Spy series. I was an Observer's Book girl, where you would have this little book and it would be like the Observer's Book of Birds or the Observer's Book of Trees or the Observer's Book of Blades of Grass, whatever. And you would carry it. It was tiny. It was it could fit in your pocket. And so if you were going to the going to the beach, for example, you could take it with you and you could find all the things that are common on beaches and uh, and tick them off. And I loved those books. I absolutely loved them. And I was very much a fiction person. But the kind of. You know, the immediacy of them, but those kind of books have always been really popular, but for some reason non-fiction for a very long time was not important as reading material in English, the English school system, apart from as instructional materials. You know, there was, reading for pleasure was only fiction. And I think that that is what Cressida Cowell is and the, and the publisher were trying to appeal to. Get boys reading by tricking them by, with the humour and also with the the multimodal aspects, you know, the the um the book and the when Hiccup 
steps outside the text and tells us a fact about dragons and so on. And so I I think that's what it was. And then there's always been this myth about boys not reading books about girls, which I absolutely think isn't true at all. I think adults tell children or tell boys that they shouldn't be reading books about girls, but girls for some reason can, you know, can always read books about boys. And that's, There's, I think. It's very much socialized. Yeah. Um, and it start, the socialization starts very, very young. Like in the States, there's the Babysitter's Club. Yeah. There's so many of those books and they're everywhere. Like everyone has some of them. Um, there's n like, there's no reason that boys couldn't fall into that fairly mm. easily and enjoy them, except they're told not to. Mm. Like, but girls don't have any problem reading like the Bakkar children books or the Hardy Boys. Yeah. Yeah. Even the whole like Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew thing, sort of like the divide. Even though, even back then, they had um, crossover. They had crossover books. Yes, they did. Where Nancy right. Drew and the Hardy Boys hung out. But yeah, it's it's very much it's socialized, um, and it's not all related to books either. Um, part of it is things that people absorb from society about what yeah. you are are supposed to do and how you're supposed to behave. Like as a queer author writing queer books like the number of unknowingly homophobic reviews that I have seen of my work, both under Trip Gailey and other pseudonyms, um, where it's just like, yeah, I just, uh, I just, I, I just don't read books with gay characters. Like I, I just, I just can't relate to it. I'm like, you can relate to books that have a dragon as a protagonist, but you oh, can't relate to books about another human being. Yeah. And it's, it's very much, Boys have to do He-Man hero, manly boy mm -hmm. stuff, and girls have to do pretty, pretty princess, whatever stuff. So, like, that sinks in, and on some level, people, like, read it, and they feel, oh, I, I can't enjoy this. I, f I find it absolutely bemusing. Um, a couple of years ago, well, not even a couple of years ago, about 10 years ago, I realized that how, mu how much... I read that was written by cis straight white men. And so I deliberately for a year said, I mean, like, this is weird. I'm a feminist. I've always been a feminist. And I still realized that I was unconsciously somehow going towards, you know, George R. R. Martin and, and so on. And so I stopped and made myself read books by authors of colour, queer authors, women authors, and um, particularly authors writing from other traditions that were not kind of like, uh, you know, Viking stroke early medieval fantasy settings. And actually, I've not really gone back. I still prefer to read books, particularly because I love fantastic, I love fantasy fiction. So actually, I want books that are set in other worlds that don't look like medieval Scotland. You know, that's not diversifying my reading. Um, so I feel that that point about I can't really relate is a failure of imagination in the reader. 
it's not it's not because there's too much being written that's you know out of my experience um and like you say what well, if if dragons if you can read a book and set in a world where dragons are real whether or not they're part of normal society then why can you not read books with queer protagonists or that are set in medieval china or that are um i don't know uh based on um aboriginal australian mythology i don't get it you know your fantasy is supposed to be the writing of pure imagination and yeah and yet people just want brandon sanderson again and again and again and his extruded fantasy product there's yeah there's something wonderful about the familiar and being able to get more of the thing you like mm. um but like you don't have to limit yourself just to yeah. the thing that you like um there are other like if i had never in my if i just if i so as a child i was a finicky eater i was such mm -hmm. a finicky eater um and i did not like the way that tapioca pudding looked no me neither it's like frog spawn no uh, and i was like i wouldn't try it i wouldn't try it i wouldn't try it and then at one point because my great-grandmother used to make it all the time she's like well would you try it for me and so i tried it and i'm like oh great now this is my favorite pudding fantastic this is the pudding <laughs> i like more than any of the other puddings and like like my parents like they, they tried to hide it from me because whenever my great-grandmother would bring it over i would eat the whole bowl like they wouldn't get any of it i would just <laughs> i would just like no it's gone it is mine and it's like you're not like i wouldn't like if i had stuck with my safe zone I would not have discovered how much I adore tapioca pudding. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And um I I'm a, what the what irritates me about these arguments about I can't read things that are not about people like me is that actually, you know, white cis male authors are doing absolutely fine. We don't need to worry about them. You know, they, they frequently are the top of the bestseller lists. So it's not like anyone's taking anything away from them. No one's going out and burning Terry. No, Patrick but it's, it's the thing. It's, it's the, it's the thing of if you have been privileged all your yeah. life, equality feels like oppression. Yeah. And like in science fiction and fantasy right now, more women are being published than men. And that's awesome. Mm. like we've had a lot of men writing but men are still getting really good book deals yeah they're getting really good advances on really good contracts well <laughs> within the range of the fact that like a lot of publishing advances are not enough to live on yeah um, yeah that's true. but uh just yeah. because you don't have just because you don't command 95 percent of the market anymore doesn't mean you're being oppressed yes it just means you have to work a little harder and i know it's heartbreaking because this industry is so difficult like it yeah. is it is what well, it is rewarding and it is magical and i love being here but it is also brutal <laughs> like yeah. it is brutal it is not a lot of money and it takes you three sometimes five years to get paid um and I there's a lot of extra work you have to do uh particularly now in terms of like self-promotion and whatnot yeah I don't know any author 
who doesn't have another job or who doesn't have a partner that supports them. No, oh, actually, no, that's not true. Adrian Tchaikovsky. But, I mean, my God, that man works. You know. Yeah. I haven't had to do anything but writing for the past year and a half. A lot of that is ghostwriting. It's a lot of writing for hire. Um, but I haven't had to do, I haven't had, I, I've supported myself entirely from fiction writing and nothing else for the past 18 months or so. That's amazing. Um, it's really, really sporking hard. And it makes it very, very hard to have enough bandwidth to write my own creative stuff. Yeah. Um, so I do sort of feel like I do still have sort of like a day job. Um, hopefully I will eventually move away from that. But yeah, it is, it is not easy. It's mm. not easy. Um, and yeah. if, you, if, if you're into self-publishing or indie publishing and that sort of thing, yeah, you can make a living doing that too. But that's even harder because you've got to worry about cover and you have to work those adverts and those algorithms until your fingers are worn to the bone. Um, but we get to go to conventions. Exactly. We get to like be around people who love books and reading and people who love dragons. Um like I feel sort of bad. Like I don't want to like rag on how to train your dragon. I enjoyed the book. Like there was a lot of like good stuff in there. It's just I think I came to it from the movie, and I came yeah. to it slightly too old. Um, but how, how to train your dragon? It, like it, it, it's good. But like, uh, but being being in the world of publishing and specifically science fiction and fantasy publishing, honestly, like people are amazing, especially here in the UK. Because I was I was a U.S. convention goer, and now I'm a U.K. convention goer predominantly. Now that I'm living here, like the U.K. convention scene is that's fantastic. Mm. It's so amazing. It's so it's it's exactly the right size. You can find a nice welcoming group of people, and like there's so much fun and interesting stuff, and you make such great relationships. Um, I, I live in a flat. I live in a flat that we call the writer flat. Mm. Uh, because all of us are writers of some form or other. Um, some of us have day jobs, some of us don't, but like, it's just great. And you can engage and create and mm. have kind of conversations about books. Um, uh, yesterday, yesterday we officially incorporated uh, a flat that the flat has formed a queer science fiction fantasy small press imprint. Um, we are oh, called Bona. Yeah, we're called Bona Books. Bona being Polari for good. Um, yes. uh, we've got a logo. We we've got our like governmental thing saying that we're an official business. We have such such a fun ridiculous Kickstarter planned for September. Like, oh, ah, I can't say anything about it yet, but we've got. Oh, the cover art that is in process right now. And we've got some of our solicited authors are very, very exciting. But like you can do that. Like you can like we we live in a world where you can make these connections and you can create books. Mm. And it's beautiful and it's amazing. It's hard. It's hard sporking work. It really it's so hard, but it's so worth it. And it's uh oh, I love it. Yeah. Sorry, tangent over. <laughs> no, 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 that's great. So I was going to say, where can we find you online? But please do send me all the links and I will put it in the show notes. 
Uh, yeah. Uh, so you can find me. I'm usually at Trip Gailey. Um, uh, I'm at Trip Gailey on Twitter for <laughs> for as long as Twitter lasts. Yeah. Um, I am at I'm, I'm just at Trip dot blue sky dot social dot whatever on blue sky um i'm at trip gailey on tiktok um someone swiped my name on instagram before i got there so on instagram i'm at gailey down the path and i do have a facebook page although i am absolutely rubbish at updating it um i mean i'm pretty rubbish at doing social media updates as it is to be honest but it's another um, bit of work sometimes isn't it oh it so is but but it's fun and you'll see random stuff um Mm. yeah and then if you want to know more about crazy queer science fiction fantasy anthologies uh we are at bona books that's b-o-n-a bona and most of the socials all over the socials i shall find that i will follow you i'm i must say that i with the implosion incoming implosion of of twitter i haven't really found my home anywhere else yet um but there's too much there's just too much out there too many platforms yeah there's way too many platforms yeah and it's all fragmented and weird and none of them quite capture the the original core ones and like what they had but even the core ones like i remember twitter in 2008 twitter in 2008 was amazing yes um and i was i was on facebook back when it was restricted to like six eight universities and no one else could get it um it's so different now um honestly like just i think the worst thing is like them getting rid of chronological updates for an algorithm oh that infuriates me yeah and it's so hard then to go back and reset it and then try and then the next time you look and yeah so you suddenly randomly something pops up that happened like five days ago or something. Oh. Yeah, I would have been really excited to talk to you about that five days ago if yeah. I had known. Yeah, exactly. Oh, thank you so much. And Oh, no, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to episode 34 of Fantasy Book Swap. You can find us on Twitter uh, at Fantasy Swap, on Facebook at Fantasy Book Swap, or email Fantasy Book fantasybookswap at gmail.com you can subscribe at most of your favorite podcast places or download from podbean please do rate and review if you can it helps to satisfy my vanity thanks to steve vapor trails for production assistance and jack sadler johnson for the use of his beautiful track bliss until next time bye